0: The book of Matthew, chapter 16 this evening, as we make our way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, on Sunday nights. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll want to have one, and guys are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just flag them and they'll put one in your hand, and if you don't own a Bible, we sure want you to own a Bible. God does too. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. Matthew chapter 16, and then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And so here they are, um, the the leaders of the two major Jewish religious uh, sects at the time of uh, Jesus' ministry. They're making their way all the way from Jerusalem up into the Galilee of the north in uh, combining themselves together in their opposition of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was an equal threat to both the Sadducees and to the Pharisees. They both recognized it. We'll find out a little bit why a little bit later down in the passage. But they're united together, and they say politics makes strange bedfellows, and uh, Jesus did the same thing. The people that would unite together in opposing him and these two groups that were so uh, polarized religiously, politically, And in in terms of power, uniting together in a desperate attempt to stop Jesus, his popularity. This movement that he had brought to birth the kingdom of God in the world. So they came together, they're unified, and they came with the purpose of testing him. And it's important to notice that testing him, the question they're about to pose or the request they're going to make to him in just a moment here, it's not honest. This is not an honest conversation that is going on here. This is a test. They are trying to find fault with him, uh, overthrow him and his uh, his, uh, his followers and his popularity. And so they came testing him, and they asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And the idea is that they w- he would perform a sign for them that would conclusively prove to them that he was indeed the Messiah. So that's what they're asking for. Uh, give us a sign, you give us that sign, And this will take us over the edge and we'll believe that you are the Messiah. So they're giving the impression that just one more miracle would cause them to believe. And it's hypocrisy on their part because they have no intention of believing in Him. But this is the act that's going on, the requesting uh, of a sign uh, of Uh, of him. And so, really, there's nothing that Jesus could have done that would have persuaded them or changed their mind. They just wanted to give the appearance before the crowd that they were honest seekers and, uh, and, uh, and that they could have had their mind changed. And if their mind wasn't changed, it was because of Jesus. And and uh, n- not because of some failure on, on their part. Jesus rebukes them. Jesus realizes these guys don't need a sign. What they need is a rebuke. And when Jesus realizes we don't need a sign, but we need a rebuke, then he's going to give that uh, to them, and he gave, uh, did exactly that. And he answered and he said to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather. Uh, for the sky is red at night, and in the morning it'll be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, strong word, Jesus calls them act- actors. He calls them phonies. He calls them out in front of everybody else that this is, you guys are acting, you're phony, this is not what it appears to be. And He said, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, he's telling them that concerning uh, the weather, you come to valid conclusions concerning the weather based upon what you see, but concerning the Messiah, concerning spiritual things, you refuse to do that. So I was raised, and perhaps many of you were raised with the old uh, saying, somebody drummed it into our heads somehow, red sky at night is a sailor's delight red sky in the morning is a sailor's warning. Red sky at night means the storm is going to clear. It'll probably be nice in the morning. The sailor likes that. A red sky in the morning means the storm is on top of everything, and so don't go out in the boats. And so uh, the ability to determine the weather that's coming on the basis of of observing it. And uh, so that Uh, that rhyme that's been used through the ages for forecasting uh, the weather. And thousands of years it's been uh, spoken by people. You see a red sky at night, what's the conclusion? Fair weather tomorrow. You see a red sky in the morning, the conclusion, he's saying to them, is foul weather is coming. And Jesus is in essence saying, when you see fulfilled prophecies, when you see the healings that I've done, when you see the deliverances that I've done of the demon-possessed people, the gospel being preached, lives being changed right and left, what is the only logical conclusion that you can come to? The only logical conclusion is that the Messiah is here and that I am the Messiah, what you, the The conclusion that you come to on the basis of the skies. You have the ability to do that. You have the ability to assess and come to a proper conclusion. But the reason that you won't come to a proper conclusion concerning me is because you're not honest about what it is that you're uh, seeing. And so they had all of the signs that they needed and even more to uh, recognize Him to be the Messiah. They simply didn't want to come to a proper conclusion concerning Jesus, not because they lacked signs. They had signs from one end of Israel to the other, north, south, east, and west. They didn't want to believe, and, and, uh, and it's, that's the way that it you know, is yet today. He does uh, defer to them. And he is going to give them an additional sign, but it's with a warning. He says, A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He agreed to give them one final sign concerning their faith for recognizing him as the promised Messiah, but he would not give them a sign of their choosing. It would be a sign of of His choosing, and He gave them the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah, as he says here, was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, as this is repeated throughout the gospel, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking of His resurrection. The idea is that He would be in the heart of the earth following His death three days and three nights only. He is prophesying here of the witness of his resurrection uh, from uh, the dead. And then we're told, and he left them and departed. In departing from them after making this statement to them, uh, Jesus was communicating in essence that that is all of the evidence that anyone needed for them or anyone in history for putting their faith in Him as the Messiah, as their Lord, and as their Savior, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if a person rejects the witness of Scripture concerning Jesus as the Messiah, rejects His sinless life, rejects His perfect life, rejects all of His miracles, His resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is saying, no other miracle that could be done for you will have an impact upon you. There's no other sign that you can demand of God for faith that's greater than the signs that He has already provided to us. And maybe you had this happen while you were growing up or in your uh, young adult life, where someone who was an atheist or agnostic or even drunk uh, getting in a place and saying, God, if you're real, then I'd just then just, you know, kill this guy right next to me. They never say anything about them. Or or sometimes they say, you know, smite me with lightning or, you know, hit the tree over here with lightning. And they throw this test out to God in order for him to prove himself uh, to be uh, real and will believe in you if you do that kind of of a miracle. And the person that demands that kind of a personal sign or miracle from God before they'll put their faith in Him, they're operating under this misguided idea that they can choose a better sign than God can for their faith. But they never can, and we can't either. God has taken that off of the table. So the next time you hear somebody say, God, if you're real, then just smite or just do this, you can say, God's taken that off of the table. You don't get to do that. In fact, if you demand that of God, Jesus said, you're an adulteress in a wicked generation. Because the reason that God takes it off the table is that there is no demand for a miracle that we can ask of God for our faith. In Jesus is the Messiah that is greater than the signs that he has already given us. The life of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, any sign that you and I would ask of him, in order to make that the basis of our faith in him, in lieu of all of these other things, is like tissue paper in comparison. It'll never take us through. We think if God does this, then my faith will be anchored. I'll never doubt for the rest of my life. This will be the thing that seals me. It won't last you through your first experience of spiritual warfare. It'll burn up right inside of your hands. Jesus told the story. I don't believe it's a parable. Luke 16, I think it is. He told the story of how Lazarus and the rich man went into Abraham's bosom, and it's in two compartments. There is the hot side in which the rich man went into, and then there's the comfortable side, Abraham's bosom, the side where people ended up in terms of this uh, Hades, this waiting place for the ultimate judgment, looking ahead to the Messiah in faith, the, po- the poor beggar, he ended up on that side, and the rich man is on the hot side, and he begins to have a conversation, and he calls on the beggar to, you know, to come and give him just... calls on Abraham to send the beggar over, just one drop of water on my tongue so that I can have some a moment's relief from this torment... And then he calls on Abraham and, and, and asks that this beggar, the, the poor man, the beggar man would be sent back into the world to warn my family not to come here. And, and, and he was told that even if they were to see him rise from the dead, if they won't believe in the prophets then they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. You'd think that if, you know, uh, Lazarus came back from the dead, came on the scene, that everybody would look and believe. And yet, what happened, you know, uh, 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 as Jesus would raise people from the dead, did it produce faith in people as a result of that? No, they continued to oppose him. And so, this idea of... You know, uh, uh, fighting against him here, and and, uh, and and the idea that some one more miracle it will be the can be the basis of my faith, a miracle of my choosing. Jesus said, "No, that's the mark of a wicked and adulterous generation. And if my death, burial, and resurrection won't satisfy, then nothing will satisfy. A person's not being honest at that point." And then when when the disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So somebody forgot to gather up the bread. It was somebody's responsibility, and they all looked out for one another. But but this was what they they had done. And Jesus then said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, they immediately begin to have this kind of guilty conscience. Oh, brother, we forgot to take bread, and that, and that's why Jesus is telling us to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, because we forgot uh, to, to we haven't taken on uh, any bread. And Jesus, he was aware of it, of course, and he said to them, "Oh, you of little faith." Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you think that that's what I'm talking about? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many uh, baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets uh, you took up? Uh, Jesus is basically asking them, Now, um, uh, since when... uh, have I depended upon you for bread? (laughs) Since when have any of us felt like we're in any danger of starvation because you brought bread or not? And so he helps them to realize he wasn't talking about bread. And he said, how is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, literal, physical bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when they understood, uh, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, that is the teaching uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so um, here Jesus warns them against the, the leaven. Leaven is, is, speaks of corruption. It speaks of sin. And so he's warning them against the the teaching of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Sadducees that it will corrupt uh, the Word of God. It is a cor- corrupt doctrine that will corrupt uh, and influence our relationship with God adversely. It will bring corruption into our relationship with the Lord. And so the Pharisees, they were the legalists of their day. And the legalist is basically someone who takes a simple command from the Word of God, there it is, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And a legalist, and and every one of us is either a legalist or uh, a liberal in terms of handling the Word of God by nature in one direction or another. There are very few people that are right in the middle. So there's a large number of us, even in this room, that we have a tendency in one direction or the other that we have to be aware of. Well, a legalist looks at one of those simple commands and determines, uh, in in an effort to please God, that if God has demanded this… And to go this far with the commandment, then he must be doubly pleased if we go twice this distance uh, down the path related to that uh, commandment. And so this far is good, this far must even be better. And so they take and they make the Word of God and the commandments of God more demanding than they actually are, uh, stricter than they actually are. And Jesus is warning against that and declares that it corrupts Christianity, it corrupts good doctrine, and he doesn't want it to have anything to do with it, and he doesn't want uh, it to be a part of our lives either. And so... Anytime you're in a situation that is legalistic in nature, somebody is taking and putting demands on you in the form of tradition or in the forms of the commandments of men that is beyond the demands of Scripture, they are not helping God out. God warns you that it's 11, it will corrupt your Christian life, and you are to move away from it. It is a damaging thing to what Christ came to teach and to do in this world. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They were clear on the other end of the spectrum of the Pharisees. They were also the rationalists of their day. they wouldn 't believe anything that they couldn't understand, which is like really dumb because if I can underst- if I can understand it, then it 's smaller than my mind and And now I'm worshiping something that if I can understand, for instance, a God, the old saying is, a God that's small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. Because if if I can fit him in his ways all within the confines of my understanding, then he is smaller than me. And if he's smaller than me, why in the world am I going to worship him? And so in a relationship with God, you have to get, a person has to get used to mystery. He is way bigger than us. And so here is like the intelligentsia. This is kind of the liberal wing of, uh, you know, liberal Protestant in the United States of America. So they they poo-poo and dismiss the virgin birth, the resurrection uh, from the dead, uh, and, and miracles, and they explain them away and so forth. Why? Because they can't perform those things and then then they're not going to ascribe those things to god and so you end up with this very very small god and it's essentially the worship of self and the worship of intellect and that's what liberalism is in the liberalism and theologically speaking they look at a commandment of god and Uh, And as these Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in any, any of those things because they couldn't figure it out. It didn't fit within their minds. It's the miraculous. It's a God thing. And so... Uh, and so the Sadducees, this was, uh, this was the way that they handled things. Uh, modern liberalism, it's the same kind of a way, and, uh, where you, they take a simple commandment of God from His Word, and then what they do is they basically neuter it. They just gut it. And so here is something God says, thou shalt or God shalt not, and they come along and say, well, it doesn't really say that. It doesn't really mean that. Or we don't have to take that seriously. Or, you know, that was important and it meant something to people who were living 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't have any application to us today. And all of this stuff goes on all of the time. And that's Sadduceeism. They don't like something in God's Word, and so they make it less demanding that it is, with the idea that they're going to make Christianity more appealing to the Word, or this is the Christianity that they would have died on the cross to provide if they could have done so, and they're smarter than God. But the problem with it is, is the Word of God is perfect. And God knows from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, that when He said, Thou shalt, He meant it. And that's as far as he meant related to that issue. When he says, thou shalt not, that's what he means. And he doesn't need any help in making it stricter or in making it looser or explaining it away. So the warning against false doctrine, the warning against liberal teaching in that way and legalistic teaching, and liberal teaching fills the world of professing Christianity that is all around us. Again, most of the mainline denominations within Protestantism, so-called in the United States, that they are Sadducees. This is liberalism, theological liberalism. Legalistic churches abound all over the place. And so for you and I as Christians, the importance of looking and saying, they have nothing to offer you. They will not improve Christianity and they will not improve your Christian experience. Do not get sucked up into either camp. They are a corruption in the same way that leaven corrupts uh, dough and permeates all of it. They are a corruption of what Jesus, the life that Jesus has called us into and so steer clear of it. There's something that's interesting today today. You know, we live in a very politically correct world uh, today. It's it's just, isn't it nuts? I mean, it's just... I I keep saying that, but I mean, they, they cause me to marvel on a new level every week. What can I say about it? What's going on? But you know, nobody can criticize this, or nobody can criticize that, or you're being intolerant, all of these terms that are thrown around and all, and we can become as Christians. I'm not interested in any way getting on a crusade and cleansing out every bit of false doctrine in the body of Christ or anything like that, but we've gotten to a place where you can't criticize anything that's wrong just about. And the whole thing that's going on out in the world now comes into the church, And there's less of a tendency to look and say, as would happen in the past, that's wrong. That's legalism. That's explaining the way the Word of God. You can't do that. You aren't to help God in that way. Be not many masters, because you're going to face the harsher judgment, but it it needs to be said. It's funny here now. We got you know. It's been several months now in the news, where the universities now have these um, pockets of area on the university where you can't say anything that will offend whoever's little piece of land that that is. And now everybody's all, you got that craziness? Oh. how weak are you? You can't handle a different, you can't handle your beliefs being challenged by somebody else and then have something that is wrong fall at your feet and be rid of it and thankful of it for the weak, pathetic thing that it is or something that will then cause you to go deeper into your belief because it shows you that this is something strong and this is something that has life. We're breeding such weakness in our culture, such softness within our culture. And anybody that's got a descending view, and we are on the menu as Christians, now instead of allowing the debate to occur publicly and for people to choose what is the better view now, now they're legislating, now they're going to the judicial system to silence opposing views. It's all an expression of weakness, all an expression of, of weakness. And... Uh, and this kind of thing going on and, and the, the protection. I, I was getting some dental work done this last week. I broke a tooth and it's been nine months getting the dumb thing taken care of. So, But we're sitting there and she's the dentist is working to put this implant deal and the whole thing and, and all. And then she said something that was like something that anyone would have said 20 years ago. And said, so, oh, "Oops! I, you know, I didn't, you know, mean to say that." And I said, "Listen, I'm old school. I'm not that sensitive on things. It was just a, a kind of thing." But we're in such a place where you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't tell this joke, you can't. Until what we're going to end up with is dentists, dental hygienists, salespeople, everyone in the whole world is just going to be a robot that will speak whatever script has been given to them, and you're going to look at them and say, is there a human being inside of there? Is there a person inside of there? You have my permission. Tell me an Irish joke. You will not offend me. But tell me an Irish joke just to show that you can do it in the current environment. I can't say to say a Polish joke because I'm not Polish. You can give somebody that invitation. But it, it's, it's crazy you know, what's going on here, and how getting silence, getting silence, and I don't know how I got all the way out here. I'm trying to figure out how to get it back into the Bible here, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, to be discerning. It's okay to say something is wrong and to reject it. And then they understood that he was talking about the doctrine, and so let's look at our lives tonight. Are you tapped into false doctrine tonight? Are you listening to teaching that is of either of these two extremes or just pure heresy? You're tapped in. You See, I can handle it, I can handle it. Jesus wants it's leaven. It corrupts, it does it slowly, but it never stops until it permeates. False doctrine is serious business. False doctrine about human history or American history, that's bad enough. But false doctrine about God and about the Word of God, that's about as serious as it gets, and you have to be careful. So if any of us are here tonight, we're tapped into false doctrine and feeling like, well, you know, I can handle this much of it, Jesus said, it's corruption, it's leaven, and He warns us away from it. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and one of the favorite spots of people on any uh, trip to Israel, it's up about 25 miles north of of the Sea of Galilee, beautiful region. It's one of the three sources, water sources, of the Jordan River. It comes up right up out of the ground, a natural spring at Caesarea Philippi. So he asked his disciples, and he said to them, he said, asking them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now notice, he's not asking this because he doesn't know who he is. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He knows exactly who He is. But he knows people got a lot of opinions about Him. And so they said, hey, they didn't even bat an eye. I mean, there's all kinds of opinions about Jesus in those days. And they said, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. You are John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or you have the spirit of John the Baptist on you, that you've come into the world to be a great kind of moral reformer, calling the world to repentance. Others consider you to be Elijah, you know, the great miracle worker of the Old Testament. That's how they see you. Jesus is uh, uh, just a great miracle in a long line of miracle workers going back into the Old Testament. Others think that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Jesus wept at least twice in his public ministry and did so publicly and people saw it and so they say, they people that were at that particular those events they would look and say ah he has a spirit like uh, Jeremiah he is like the weeping prophet and so uh, this is who he is this great compassion uh, for people and a love for people. Other people think that you're one of the prophets. You're just in a long line of prophets that have come from God to the Jewish people. In other words, you're just another great teacher. And that was the assessments that immediately poured out of them in, uh, in answer to Jesus' question there. And then Jesus said to them, and here's the most important question that anybody will ever answer in their life, and Jesus asked it. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? All right, we know what the world is saying. We know what everybody else is saying. But uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's a mouthful. When he says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the Messiah. When he says, you are the Son of the living God, he is declaring that Jesus is divine. He is both the Son of God and God the Son. And when he declares that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is declaring those two things to be true of Jesus and that he believes those things to be true of Jesus unto salvation in his life. This is what he believes personally about Jesus. And so Jesus then answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. The revelation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, when anyone knows that to be true and believes that to be true, that's a revelation that the Father gives to that person. And here that revelation was given to uh, Peter here, and he believed in that uh, revelation. And so this was given to him by, uh, by uh, uh, the, the, the Lord, the revelation coming to him, and so he commends him for his response. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and this is the truth in essence about uh, uh, about myself. Now, Peter answers here correctly. The it's the correct answer to the most important question that anyone uh, will answer in their. Life. And any other view of Jesus other than this, than that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Savior of the world, that He is the Son of God, that He is divine, any other opinion of Jesus that is less than that is a wrong view of Jesus. This is the view of Jesus that Jesus affirms that He is the Messiah and He is divine. He is the Son of God. Now, before we go further into the passage, I, I think it's interesting as we read the account here to uh, ask ourselves. We say, okay, So we look at the passage, I say to myself, I understand why Jesus asked the second question. Who do you say that I am. I understand that because that's the most important question. What I don't understand is why he asked the first question before he asked the second question, who do men say that I am? What does that matter if the second question is the most important one? Why does he even bother with it? The point that Jesus was making in asking the first question is this, and I think essentially Jesus was saying that the consequences of my answer to the second question is so great that I must not accept the conclusions of others concerning Jesus because they're often wrong. I have to come to my own personal conclusion concerning Jesus. And in asking the first question, Jesus is recognizing the fact that anyone who does come to a proper conclusion regarding him him, has to do so in a sea of very conflicting ideas and wrong opinions about him, and he's really sympathetic to that. So here are the disciples. Here is Peter. He declares what he declares concerning Jesus, but he is a minority. The overwhelming majority believe him just to be a type of John the Baptist or a type of Elijah or a type of Jeremiah or a type of one of the prophets. And that's the prevailing view. And Jesus is saying that for us to hold the view that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we must come to that conclusion concerning him in a sea of wrong ideas about him. And that's the world that we live in today. And even in what oftentimes calls itself Christianity or the secular world looking at Jesus, well, he's a great teacher. He was a great miracle worker. He was a great model of mankind. He was a great teacher. These are the the labels that are put upon Jesus. But this is all that he he is. And there's a whole world that lives around us that believes that to be that's the only thing that's true concerning him and we have to come to put our faith come to the proper conclusion concerning him that he's the Christ the son of the living god in a sea of this kind of stuff and sometimes it gets to you so here you are a christian you become a christian you believe in that he is the christ he is the son of the living god and you do it in defiance, so to speak, or in opposition to maybe a liberal church upbringing, or whatever it might be, all of your family believes this about him or believes He's only a great teacher or this or that, but don't go crazy and give your life to Him. We certainly don't believe that He's the Son of God. We don't believe Him to be the Messiah. And yet, because God gave you a revelation in your heart that this was true concerning Him, and you put your faith in Him, you were born again. But then you're born again for a long time, and you're the only Christian in your family, and you're the only Christian in your school, and you're the only Christian in your workplace, and you're the only Christian in your neighborhood, and it can begin to wear on you because you're a significant minority and becoming more of a minority, and you begin to wonder, you know, am I the one that's wrong, and are all of them right? Are all of these other views of Jesus right? And when Jesus takes and asked him the first question, he's in essence saying that you're going to have to hold the true view, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, in a sea of false views concerning me, and you're going to have to maintain that understanding of me in the midst of a sea of wrong opinions concerning me. And that's why he asks the first question, the realization, he's sympathetic to the fact that uh, As Christians, we are even as Christians, we hold a minor—we are a minority in terms of our view of understanding who He is. And then Peter, Jesus goes on and says in verse eighteen, "And I say to you, uh, to Peter, that you are Peter." And he uses the word petros, which is a, a means a small rock, a small stone. You are Peter. You're the little rock. And upon this rock, and in the original language is the word uh, petra, and it means a large stone, something like the rock of Gibraltar, a rocky crag. You are the little stone, and upon this rock, this great stone, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's a a large number of people who interpret this, and they believe that uh, Peter is the foundation, he is the stone that the entire church is built upon as Jesus makes the promise here uh, to him. But the interesting thing is nobody believed it at the time. Uh, following this particular event, a little bit later in the gospel according to Matthew, the disciples are going to be arguing over with one another over who's the greatest. And, uh, and uh, James and John are going to put their mother up to try and secure the two highest places in heaven for their sons. So there's no idea that they walked away from this conversation and said, Jesus settled the whole thing. Peter's the foundation. He's the greatest apostle. They knew all of this was still in play. They never understood that as an interpretation of the passage. Peter himself didn't understand that because when he speaks later on in the book of Acts, we'll get to it on a Sunday morning, and even in his epistles, he declares Jesus to be the chief cornerstone of the church. And... Paul goes on and he writes in his epistles of the fact that Christ is the foundation of the church. There is no other foundation but Christ. So it's clearly not speaking of the fact that Jesus has chosen Peter now to build his church upon Peter. Well, what is the church? The church is 4300 American Avenue. I mean, you're sitting in it right here. No, that's not what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. It's every Christian in the whole wide world. That's the church. And so there's no way that Jesus is going to take his church, this, this dynamic, this thing called the kingdom of God made up of, uh, of people, And Peter is the foundation of all of that. It's irrational. It doesn't make any kind of sense. And again, the conclusive in my mind, at least, you know, related to all of this is he uses an entirely different uh, word, uh, petros, to speak of Peter, and then when he talks about the rock that he's going to build his church upon, he uses a different word, the word petra or petra. And so what is this rock that Jesus is going to build his church upon? that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. It's the confession of Peter in verse 16, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what the church is built upon, that confession and that understanding of Jesus. Nobody's born again without that understanding of Jesus, for him being uh, who he is. If he's not divine, he can't save anyone. So that confession is the foundation. That is the rock, the foundation that Jesus will build his church upon. He'll build that church and that upon that foundation, upon that confession and understanding concerning him. You go to any place where this is declared concerning Jesus doesn't matter what kind of a church it is, but they believe that Jesus is the Christ and He is the Son of the living God and we are born again through faith in Him. There's life in that place because there's life in that gospel. There's the witness of the Holy Spirit to Christ and to that message concerning Him. You go to any church that denies that He is the Christ and the Son of the living God and you won't be able to find the Holy Spirit there to save your life because there's nothing for the Holy Spirit to bear witness to. And so this is what he builds his church upon, that confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he says further that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It will not prevail against what Jesus will build upon that that confession, which is the body of Christ. Now, when it talks about the gates of hell, in that place, Caesarea Philippi, it's known today as Banyas. Uh, it's actually the ancient name for it is Panyas. It was the uh, ancient site for the worship of the false god Pan. But because the Arabs can't pronounce P's very well, it became known as Banyas. But in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is giving this teaching, there is a sheer wall of stone, and there's water coming up out of the ground from water that is coming, snow melt from Mount Hermon. It's coming up, and then it goes forth, and it feeds, well, as I said, one of the three tributaries that feeds the, the uh, Jordan River. But here, as is, is you're on the lower level and you look up, there's this great hole and this gigantic cave up in this gigantic rock that is uh, located there. And what people believed in those days was they worshipped Pan, they worshipped spirits, they worshipped these kind of things, the things that were in the heart of the earth and all, and they went up there, here's this big hole in the cliff, here's this great cliff, and they realized there's power, there must be power coming out of this, and it became a shrine to Pan. And so Caesarea Philippi was an ancient center for the worship of demons the worship of idolatry, and so they would have understood exactly what he was saying. He's making this confession concerning… he's affirming this confession concerning himself and then he in essence points to what's going on here, all of the pagan worship that was happening there to this day, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against what I'm going to build upon that uh, confession. Now the interesting thing about gates in the ancient world… A gate that was located in the city, that was a defensive part of the city. And so Jesus is not only saying here that uh, that Satan's attack against the body of Christ that is built upon this confession, that that attack will never be successful against what he's building, he is also saying that if we are offensive-minded as Christians, if we are interested in taking the kingdom of God into places that are ruled by darkness, that even the greatest gate, the greatest stronghold for demon worship in the world will not be able to withstand our presence and our moving into that particular place. It's demonstrated all of the time. Light always has authority over darkness, You go into a dark room and you want to take care of the darkness, what do you do? You say, honey, go get me the baseball bat and my shotgun. I'm going to drive the darkness out of the room. That's not what you do because it'll never be successful. It's a lot easier than that, a lot less costly too. What do you do? You find the switch and you turn on the light. And when you turn on the light, darkness has to flee. Light is superior to darkness in this regard. It must always flee. And the same thing is true related to the kingdom of God. No matter how great the stronghold, the demonic stronghold might be in the world or in a person's life, when the kingdom of God, when we move into it, it must move. It doesn't mean there won't be a fight, but darkness must give way to light. And it is a wonderful promise to us, and it's one of the things that strengthens and emboldens missionaries all around the world who are going into great darkness all around the world places that have been dominated by paganism, by demon worship for hundreds of years, and they come in with this promise knowing that I am a part of what Christ has built upon this confession of Peter, and this must give way to the truth and the power of God. And you end up with a power encounter, and God is always going to win a power encounter, though there can be a battle. Somebody was talking with me the other day and. Um, uh, one of our home fellowship leaders and you guys had a discussion in that uh, home fellowship you know talking about you know how come we don't see more uh, miracles uh, today in the United States like we do in the book of Acts or in the Gospels or and these these kind of things and you know there, and we talked it back and forth a little bit um, there are a lot of miracles in the Gospels a lot more than were recorded in the book of Acts a lot of miracles we don't know how many more are beyond what was recorded. The book of Acts covers a period of about thirty years, so we get the idea this was happening like every three minutes that somebody was getting raised from the dead and all. Maybe it wasn't. It's not recorded for us, but we kind of get that impression. And then when we look around and how come, you know, we're not able to, uh, you know, cause the blind to see in this church we must be lame or disconnected from the power or something like that. And very often this demonstration of God's power in this way with spiritual gifts and all, not always... But this kind of power encounter that occurs is when the gospel, and we see it in the gospels, we see it in the book of Acts, is when the gospel is being brought into an area that has been held by the devil now. For a long period of time, and now this power encounter occurs, God is going to demonstrate His superior power in a way that people can understand, and so often that's in the form of the miraculous, and then it gains an audience, and then the gospel is preached, and people are born again. But here's the thing. People want more miracles in the United States of America? Trust me, they're coming if the Lord tarries. The expansion of the occult in the United States, and I'm not even talking about people that are overt about it. There have been some articles the last couple of weeks in the paper about, you know, Satanism and demon worship and witchcraft and how this is growing in the United States of America. Of course it's growing in the United States of America. I'm talking about the people that are getting addicted to sin and to darkness and being put in bondage, and they don't even believe there's a devil yet. They don't even know there's a devil behind all of that yet. And the level at which people are coming into bondage to all kinds of things within our culture, and there's a demonic stronghold behind it, We may, even within our lifetime, someone that's as old as I am, may be in a place where we become so pagan that God will need to do signs and wonders in certain cities and neighborhoods in order to wake that neighborhood up because it's as pagan as anything else that's found in the world. And so here is this wonderful promise, though, here, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and the importance of us taking that as a truth and moving forward In the kingdom of God. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? It is the declaration of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A key is something that opens the door. It gives access. It locks a door. Salvation is found in believing that about Jesus and then trusting in Him personally. And then Jesus goes on and says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this authority was given to Peter, uh, ultimately to the, the apostles as well, John chapter 20, but to all of us. Anytime we share the gospel with another person and we declare Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, we call upon people to put their faith in Him, we are declaring to people that if you do that... Then you will gain access to the kingdom of God and you will be saved. If you refuse to do that, then you will remain in your unsaved condition. And so we have the authority to declare a person to be saved or unsaved on the basis of what they do with this understanding of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe that for myself about you. I put my faith in you for salvation. And then he commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So they aren't allowed to, 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 to declare any, uh, uh, this to anyone else. You ever uh, get given great news and you can't share it with anybody? Uh, I mean, you know this great thing, and somebody's told you, they'll say, listen, I'm going to tell you something, but only if you promise not to say it. Okay, all right, I'll do it. And then they tell you, oh, no way! There's no way I can keep that a secret. I mean, this is great news that they've got, but they've got to keep it a secret because Jesus is going to fully reveal Himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel on Palm Sunday, on the Sunday prior to His crucifixion, just as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and they were to keep it to themselves until Jesus did that. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, you just think about that. You read verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Gentlemen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Not from the common man, from the religious establishment. And then here it is. I'm going to be killed. They're going to kill me there. But I'm going to be raised again on the third day. Heavy news. This was like a bomb going off in their minds. Because the dominant teaching of the religious leaders of that time was that the Messiah would come into the world, overthrow the yoke of Rome, and establish, uh, you know, the kingdom of God and establish this independent Israel in the world. And so here Jesus is like throwing a big monkey wrench in their understanding of the Scriptures. How is it that you're going to die and rise again? How does that fit in with, with the Old Testament Scriptures that declare the Messiah is going to be a conquering king? And Jesus reminds them here that the Old Testament Scriptures also declared that he would be a suffering Savior, suffering Savior in his first coming, conquering King in his second coming. Well, Peter, listen to this. And Peter, listen, he's, he got revelation just a little bit earlier, but he's, he, get, he goes out of control here. Peter took Jesus aside. Jesus, can I, can I, get, a, can I get a word with you? And then he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. I don't want to hear one more word about you going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross and being buried and rising again on the third day. Morale's hard enough among the group right now without hearing this kind of stuff. You can't say that anymore. And he rebukes him and forbids him from saying the confession that he had made. But the problem is, is that that is exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. And here is Peter trying to rebuke Jesus away from the very thing that he came into the world to do. Have you ever spoken to God and counseled him and told him what he ought to do, and then found out later you told him the dumbest thing that you could have told him in that situation? I've done it many times. In fact, I'm almost as thankful for the prayers of mine that he has ignored as the prayers of mine that he has answered. And so we all recognize ourselves in here a little bit. Peter doesn't get it. It doesn't make any sense to him. He's going to try and coach Jesus a little bit. And then Jesus turned to Peter, and he said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Okay. One... Two, three, four, four words in the New King James. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine, as Peter is talking to Jesus here, the way that he is, this is the very last thing that he expected to come out of Jesus' mouth. He expects Jesus to say, Oh, another revelation. Peter, you're the only one who understands. These other 11, they don't get me. You understand what I need. Thank you. Thank you for helping me get a grip here. Okay, all right. I'm under control again. Oh, don't leave my side. And he's expecting commendation, and Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, that had to hit him like a ton of bricks. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God but of the things of men. And when he said, get thee behind me, Satan, he isn't saying that Peter is Satan. What he's saying is, is that Peter, what has come out of, ma- uh, out of Peter's mouth is something that comes uh, from the devil. It is not something that came from the Holy Spirit, not something that uh, came uh, from Uh, you you know, from mankind, but this is something that came uh, from the devil and the origin of this thinking, this thing that Peter was saying. And the whole uh, thing that Peter is declaring here, the whole statement that is demonic, is to come to Jesus or come to any part of his bride or his body or any Christian and declare to them, elevate your own self-will over God's will for your life whenever obeying God's will requires sacrifice. And that goes on all the time. That goes on all the time. I can't tell you how many times you know, through the years, I'll give you for an example, in a marriage, you've got a husband and wife, both of them Christians, no grounds for divorce, not even remotely. They've got a few problems that they've got to fix out, up and they'll be fine. And yet it's hard for them for a season. And then the mother will come to the daughter or the da- mother will come to the, fa- you know, to, the, uh, to the husband and all, and they see them suffering in this season of, of difficulty, and they'll just say, divorce him. Divorce her. Just get out of it. And the whole idea in the culture is, as soon as this Christian life begins to cost me anything, in order to remain faithful to the Lord, you can just throw it off, go do whatever it is that you want. You don't have to put up with that. And it's the voice of Satan in a situation. Happens sometimes in ministry where there's a person that is dying in fulfilling the call that God has placed upon their life. And people tell them, get out, quit, leave it. I mean, you're wasting your life, you know, and lay all this. And they're tempting them to leave God's call rather than encouraging them to stay in that calling. And it's the voice of the devil. And so often, we have to be careful of this, because so often it's a loved one that speaks it to us, like Peter to Jesus, or so often it is a relative, someone who's close to us, They hate to see us suffer. They hate to see difficulty. They see more problems are coming in the future. And they say, just throw the whole thing off. Retake control of your life. Forget about what God has told you to do and what His Word says. You take charge. The main thing is get out from under this suffering. And it's never the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's always the voice of the enemy. And it's so important that we recognize that. And maybe in your life, in your circumstance tonight, some of us in this room, you have people telling you, get out, get out. You've only got one life to live, and you're wasting it in this situation. You're missing out on all of life. Get out. And it's never the voice of the Holy Spirit. Speaking whether in a marriage or whether they're speaking of some hard circumstance in life, or you know that God has placed you in the workplace or the school or the environment that He has placed you in, and He hasn't told you to leave, but it is as hard as hard can be, and they come along, and they put that temptation in our hearts, and you have to ignore it. And I think it's very important because I love people. I care about people. I don't want to see people suffer any more than they do suffer or go through hardship. There can be something in me that wants to say to them, run for your life. You've had enough. I mean, how much can even God expect of a person, you know, and you're looking at it as they're in the middle of who knows what. All you got to do is read about Amy Carmichael in India, and the condition that she served God into the end of her life, bedridden for at least 14 years of her life in the mission field of India, the final years of her life, unable to do anything, but she wouldn't leave her post. And her name is gold today in the body of Christ. She needed, ev- all she needs and people like her need is every bit of encouragement to stay faithful to God. And we need to remember that again, in the softness of the culture that wants to protect everyone from hardship, that we are not to say to people, you are free to leave this because this is hard for you right now. But it's God's plan, and we're prone to do it. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men." So important to realize that. And here he is trying to, on a fleshly level, a carnal level, to bring comfort or encouragement to Jesus. And yet he is trying to talk him out of the very thing that he came into the world to do, the very thing that the Father had called him to do. And we want to be careful that we don't listen to that voice, that someone might speak into our life and our difficulty or be that voice in anyone else's life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We'll close there and pick things up next time. Father, we bless you tonight for your word. The beauty of this record, the diversity of the teaching of the things that we've looked at tonight. The things that we need to be aware of coming from the outside into our life and our relationship with you. Whether it's a false comfort that is going to stumble us from Your call in our lives, or whether it's the leaven of the Sadducees or the Pharisees. And Lord, the same tendencies in our heart, if we're not walking in your spirit, to be an unhealthy influence in the lives of others. We thank you tonight as we close. Jesus, that you are the Christ and you are the Son of the living God and that upon that rock you will build your church. We thank you for the privilege tonight of being a part of your church, being a part of your family, being a part of this beautiful thing called the body of Christ in the world today and the promises that are ours. We pray that in the current spiritual climate of the world in the United States, that that you would help us not to succumb to fear, or inferiority, or the idea of just holding on for dear life until the rapture occurs, but to remember, Lord, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against who we are in you and the message that we carry. We ask that you would protect us from a spirit of fear and timidity in this hour in which you've called us to live for you and to represent you. We pray for the body of Christ in Modesto, the body of Christ in the United States of America. We ask that you would continue to strengthen us and that you'd give us a boldness to take your truth and your spirit into every environment that you call us to do so. And then we pray, Lord, in the midst of that power encounter between those two kingdoms that is inevitably to occur, that you would show yourself to be stronger and to be the great God, the true and the living God, in the lives of everyone who's impacted, Lord. And we pray for that spirit of boldness, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.